All right. Well, thank you, Tim, for the introduction and also for the invitation that came from Tim. As he said, we're friends. And uh, when we started talking about getting together, it's been a few months ago now, the, the conversation was our church could really benefit from some conversation with COVID and everything else. We just haven't been able to get together like we used to. And our leaders haven't been able to get together for some focused discussion as often as we'd like. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could have a weekend where we could get together with our leaders and then have some conversations about how do we lead a church in a time where our whole world around us is just crazy and it's a mess outside and the mess increasingly is coming inside our ranks in the church. So in addition to our workshop yesterday morning with a number of you, I'm looking out and I'm recognizing a lot of faces. We have also had two sessions this weekend, Friday night and Saturday afternoon, with just your elders and ministers, where we've come together. And when Tim talked about hard conversations that we've had about unity in the church, I would venture to say the hardest of those conversations are the ones we had with the elders and ministers of your church. Here's what I will tell you about your leaders, and I want you to hear this right off the bat. As Tim said, I've moved around a little bit. I've worked with a handful of churches over the years. I've seen a, a spectrum of health and, and maybe disease within churches in various ways. My experience of the elders of this church, my experience of the ministers who serve this body, is that you are incredibly blessed. The spirit that I have sensed in the room when I've gathered with these men and women is a spirit of love, of self-sacrifice, of the desire to serve one another in that room, to listen to one another for understanding, that they can engage difficult conversations that have to be had among a leadership. And the impression I get is that these are people who love this church so much that they're willing to have awkward conversations among themselves because they believe that the outcome of those conversations is for the benefit of this body and the glory of God. And I'm here to tell you that is not the case in every congregation. So you're blessed by your leaders. I want to affirm them today. I want to thank you for your service and encourage you to continue eldering and ministering on in church. Will you pray for your leaders? Will you encourage your leaders? Will you affirm them and let them know that they're doing an excellent job? Love them and support them in their work because I promise you, you are blessed here at Eastside whether you realize it or not. Our title this weekend is One, The Mandate, The Mission, The Mess. I'm going to begin today by saying we just don't have enough time to get as deeply into this as I would like to get, so we're going to start out with a little homework today. We're going to look very briefly at two different passages. We'll be in Ephesians. We're going to be in John 17. So if you're a daily Bible reader, if you do some kind of devotional work at home on your own time, I would encourage you in this week or in the days to come, read Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's only six chapters. Do this with your morning coffee, and you can knock it out in probably 20 minutes. But read the book of Ephesians, start to finish. And as you read the book, I'm going to assign you to look for two different words as you read. Circle, highlight, underline the number of times you find the word one in the letter to Ephesians. For whatever reason, when Paul wrote this letter, it was important to emphasize oneness. Unity from start to finish in this letter to the church is a big deal. 
So read it from the standpoint of one and the letter that's written to the church, which is our second word that's going to come up a number of times in this letter. What is it that Paul has to say to the church and why does he continue to use that word? Secondly, take a minute and read through John 17. This is Jesus' prayer just before he's led off to be crucified. And he prays for his followers and he prays for the church that is to come. And it's beautiful, the words in that prayer. We're going to get into some of that later. But that's our homework for today because we just can't do it justice in the time frame that we have. So I want to simplify our message from this collective weekend as succinctly as possible this morning. To that end, I've got in my notes here just a brief summary of some of the things that we've been talking about already. I'm going to try to put it as plainly as I can for you this morning. So the mandate, the mission, and the mess. Let me start here. I believe the church exists by God's design and for God's purposes. This is our mandate and our mission in terms of unity. I mentioned the letter to the Ephesians. This is quickly becoming maybe my favorite book in the New Testament. As Paul addresses his letter, he says this is from Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. He addresses his letter to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Many believe that this letter was written to be an encyclical letter, which meaning in, in the pattern and the way letters worked often in the first century, a letter would be written with the intention of delivery to one congregation, but for the purpose of being spread around. So... We receive a book in our Bible that is called Ephesians, and we say this was written to the church in Ephesus, and surely it probably was, but it was also intended for a larger audience. So here's a letter to a congregation that's intended to be read and then passed on to the next congregation where it would be read and passed on to another congregation. The letter to Ephesians is not just a letter to a church, it's the letter to the church. So as we gather today as a congregation of the Lord's people and we open up the book of Ephesians, what we find here is a letter that's written to us as God's church that happens to assemble at Eastside in Colorado Springs. As Paul goes through this letter, there's just so much that we could talk about. He talks about in chapter 1 the fact that we have been saved through Christ. We have been adopted into his family. And through Christ we find forgiveness, we find redemption. And at the end of chapter 1, Paul says that God has placed all things under Christ's feet. He's appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is a letter to the church, for the church, about the church, because there's something about God's design for his people that is experienced through the church. The fullness of him, the body of Christ, the church. In chapter 2, Paul makes specific that to his immediate audience... There are people in a congregation there who come from various backgrounds. He says, there were formerly Jews and Gentiles among you, and you lived kind of in two different worlds that operated by two different systems, and you were divided. But because of Christ, because we can be reconciled together as one, there is no longer factions 
in the church. The church by nature is called to be one. Praise God, there is unity and oneness. In Ephesians 2, uh, I'm looking here, what is this about? Verse 14, 15. Paul says that the whole idea through the church is to create through Christ one new man out of two, making peace. And in this one body, the church, to, recognize, to reconcile everyone to God through the cross by which he went to death for their hostility. Jesus ties so that we can divide the divisiveness that, that otherwise would define the systems of our world. It's through the church that we find unity through Christ. And in him we are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Interestingly, side note here. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we find the historic debate between uh, faith and works and how are we saved and this kind of thing. And it's very clear to me as I read this passage as we get into Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 8. It's by grace that we've been saved through faith. But because we are God's workmanship, we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Part of us striving for unity as a church is understanding that because we have been saved in Christ... We are now his agents who have been commissioned to join him in his work. It's not our works that save us. But because we are saved, we now have work to do as Christ's agents. Part of that work is to reach out to a fallen word and share the gospel. But part of that work that's particularly difficult now is the hard work that's required to cultivate unity in churches that can easily become divided. The church should be one, and it requires work to keep it as such. In Ephesians chapter 3, again, the intent was that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, through the church, through the church. As I said, when you read through this letter this week, you're looking for two words in the book of Ephesians. One, the call for unity, how important it is in this letter. But number two, the church. The very intent was that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the, heavenly well, in the heavenly realms. Skip down to the end of chapter three. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, those who comprise the church. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Our mandate as God's people is to constitute a church that God has instituted by design for his purposes. And as we live in the church, what we experience here is God's design for community. Humankind was not created to become isolated from one another and to live alone. The point of humankind is to live in relationship with one another. And there's no other place on earth where we should experience this more richly and deeply than in the unity we find in the church where we can share in true community where I know you and you know me, where the nature of our relationships is that of service, sacrifice, submission to one another. Elsewhere in this letter, 
I believe it's chapter 4, that Paul goes on to talk about different roles that exist in the church and that the point of these roles is that we're all using our gifts to build one another up. That internally we should be helping one another to grow toward maturity and with maturity toward greater unity that we can more fully experience the community that is God's design for the church. This is our mandate. The church exists by God's design. And we are active participants in it. It requires everyone in this room to work with a particular attitude and spirit to use the gifts you've been given to help serve, to help support, to help strengthen, and to live lives of mutual submission. Paul will go there later as we get into Ephesians chapter 5 where he says, look, I'm going to apply this to a marriage and family relationship. The best marriages are those in which the husband and wife are not out for their own interests, but the goal is mutual submission. My kids get irritated with me and my wife. It's become a running running joke in our family. We'll leave a place like this, church, on Sunday morning and say, all right, time to go get some dinner. And I'll say to my wife, where would you like to go to lunch? And she says to me, I would like to go wherever you would like to go for lunch. And at this point, I hear from the back of our van my kids going, Oh no, here we go again. Because they know how the conversation goes. We've done this so many times. Well, I'm not going to pick where we want to go because I would like to go where you want to go for lunch. Imagine if this was our attitude in our marriages. Mutual submission. My interest is not in what I want or what's best for me. My interest is trying to understand what's best for you and trying to serve you and make you happy and to bless you as best I can. That, that tends to help create a healthy marriage. Would that attitude not also help us to have a healthy church? If we want to be a church that's unified, we should be having a lot more of those conversations. Where do you want to go to lunch? Because I will gladly go wherever you want to go. Because I will submit to your needs and your interests. They're more important than mine. Lives of mutual submission in the church as we serve, support, sacrifice, and submit to one another, is how we live into God's design and his mandate for his people and for the church. God calls us to be one. Now to the mission. From John 17, we have this beautiful prayer for Jesus. He's kind of to the end of his earthly ministry now, and he knows what's coming. He's about to go to the cross. And before he does... He offers this beautiful prayer, and he can pray for anything he wants. And what Jesus chooses to pray for before he starts marching to the cross is two things primarily. Number one, for his followers. And in John 17, if I were to roughly paraphrase, Jesus says, Father, I'm coming to you on behalf of my people, and I'm praying that you would please protect my followers. Please protect them in this world and help them to be one. Please help them to somehow be unified because I'm not going to be with them in the flesh anymore to protect them. I need them to somehow be unified together. So please, through the power of your spirit, can they be unified and share a unified witness to the world? Secondly, Father, through their unity, would their unity please lend credibility to their message? So not only am I praying for my followers now, But I'm praying for those who will hear about me through their message. 
And Jesus understood probably better than we do. That if we presume to tell this world about Jesus, and yet we are divided and fractured and fighting internally, what credibility does our message actually bring to a fallen world? Father, please help my people to be one. And please help through their oneness, there to be power and credibility to their message. So that my people might grow and expand. There's a mandate for unity because this is how we live into the, the economy, the group, the community that, that God has intended for us in the church. But there's a purpose of our unity as we see in John 17. That we are to live on mission for God. We experience God's intended order internally in the church to the extent that we live unified. But maybe even more importantly, our unity serves as a witness externally to the people out in the world around us, bringing credibility to our message. May my people be one, and may their oneness speak volumes to the world around them. Now when I go to share with my coworker or my friend at school about Jesus, when I invite them to my youth group or my church, and they can come and be a part of who we are together, and when they look around and have conversations with you and you and you, and when they observe and they witness and get to be a part of what we're doing here, when they see that we truly are a people who love each other enough to practice mutual submission, who are here to support one another and strengthen one another and build one another up, those are people that say, I see something different in the people in this room. There is a, a unique kind of relationship that exists here, and I may not even know how to put words into it necessarily, but it has something to do with, with family, with unity, with people that are together and love each other in a different way than what I experience in my school, my workplace, my sports team. Isn't that who we're called to be as a church? This is the part where if you'd like to nod or something, you can. Just let me know that you're with me on this. Is this not who we're called to be as a church? That's the church that I would love to be a part of because I believe that's the ideal that, that we're called to, the mandate. This is how the church works. For the sake of the mission, that we might experience the fullness of what God's called us to in the church, and that we might take that church to the world as something the world would actually be drawn to. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Amen? So we have a mandate. We have a mission. And here's the tricky part. All this gets messy. Because the world around us is really messed up. And especially in the last few years, I don't even need to go down the list. We, we know, right? If you've watched the news at all, if you've had a conversation with a coworker or a family member over Thanksgiving dinner. We know that there's all kinds of stuff going on in the world right now that is dividing us left and right into all kinds of pockets and segments. We are so divided. And our churches are reflecting our culture in that we are also becoming divided because there is so much mess and we're not getting along and we're becoming polarized and so we want to live with the mandate of being one, and we want to live on mission, living into our oneness to the glory of God and for the sake of a fallen world, but we're crippled by the mess. 
we just don't always do unity very well. Am I right? It sounds real good to say, let's be unified. We aspire to oneness. But actually putting that into practice is a very difficult thing. You've heard the expression, two wrongs don't make a right. This this is something we throw around here and there. It's It's a common expression. Two wrongs don't make a right. We use this language, right? We've heard that before. This morning, what I would propose to you is that when it comes to unity in the church, the underlying cause for a lot of our messiness is a similar expression, but it goes like this. We we all know about how two wrongs don't make a right. But in the church, what often happens is that we find two rights that make a wrong. And it happens all the time. What do I mean by this? Two rights make a wrong in our church that leads to mess. Number one, my rights. My rights. When I believe that the church exists to serve me, that the most important thing that happens here is that you recognize and adhere to my rights, Boy, we got a church that's doomed for failure. That couldn't be any more opposite. Jesus' attitude, the one that we're supposed to follow in Christ-likeness. Imagine Jesus going to the cross and stopping to say, you know what? Hang on a minute. What about my rights? How would it have changed history? How would it change our present? How would it change our eternal destination if Jesus on his way to the cross would have said, stop right there, I demand my rights. Because this doesn't serve me well today. We're talking about a man that's about to go get brutally beaten and murdered. And yet in the walls of our churches, we argue about our rights all the time as though the church owes me something. Because of my rights. I'm entitled to something here, and I expect this church to make me happy. Ever hear that before? Ever experienced that before? Have you known people who have said things like that? And true confession, let's be honest. On our bad days, that's probably true for a lot of us. I think I've probably been that guy at different times. I'm not proud of it, but I'm being honest. There's times where I really wish things would just go according to the way that I think serve me. Now let me tell you this, all right? I'm going to make a bold statement here today. I hate the Mother's Day sermon. I hate the Mother's Day sermon, all right? Now that may be an exaggeration. I don't think there's anything wrong with the Mother's Day sermon. I have an amazing mother. I've got an amazing mother-in-law. My wife is an incredible mother mother of my kids. i got nothing wrong with mothers. I think we should honor them. You want to have a Mother's Day sermon every year, knock yourselves out. Nothing wrong with that. That's my disclaimer. I'll tell you why I hate the Mother's Day sermon. I've been doing youth ministry now for over 20 years. And when you're the youth minister, you tend to be the second or third in line to preach when the preacher is either out of town or when the preacher wants to sit with his wife on Mother's Day. 
Which means that for 51 weeks a year, I get to sit in an audience and, and listen to a sermon. And one Sunday a year, I get tapped because somebody says, it's Mother's Day, I'm going to sit with my wife. Or it's Mother's Day and I happen to be out of town, so would you preach the sermon? I have been tapped to preach the Mother's Day sermon multiple times in different churches throughout my ministry career. That's not why I hate the Mother's Day sermon. Why I hate the Mother's Day sermon is when I finally get a chance to get up and preach and it's kind of a privilege and man, I've got a lot of things I'd like to say and eventually you say, is the only thing I ever get to preach on is Mother's Day? Can I please have something else to say? Can I tell you today two different occasions that I have said, this Mother's Day I'm preaching about something other than Mother's Day. Neither of those occasions ended well for me. In the first case, I preached a sermon in one congregation, and I said, we're talking about something other than Mother's Day today, and when that sermon was over, we had one of our older ladies in the church, an older member, who I thought was more mature, who should have known better, that stood right outside those doors. And to anyone who would listen, she said, I didn't get my Mother's Day sermon today. <laughs> and she's right outside those doors, stirring the pot, stirring up dissension. What is wrong with this church? If I can't come here on Mother's Day and expect to get my Mother's Day sermon, then I am unhappy because I have a right to my Mother's Day sermon. I did the same thing in another church. I thought, you know what? We're going to do this again. I'm going to preach something other than the Mother's Day sermon on Mother's Day because, you know what? I'm just going to. And if I'm up here with the mic, then I'm going to say it and you got to listen whether you like it or not. So in a second congregation, I preached my Mother's Day sermon that was not a Mother's Day sermon. And in that situation, I was pulled into a staff meeting on Monday morning. And I was reassured by the leaders in our church. Now listen, it's okay. It's okay. This is nothing for you to worry about. But you should at least be aware. We received an email this morning. And there's some people in our church that are very upset that yesterday was Mother's Day, they came to church expecting to receive their Mother's Day sermon, and they didn't get it. It was their right to have a Mother's Day sermon on Mother's Day. How often do we think this way in terms of how the church should function? It is my right that the sermon should be this or that. It is my right that the worship should look this way or that way. It's my right that this church provide an age-specific ministry for everybody in my family and better be up to snuff based on my specifications because I have in rights. And the church is here to serve me. And you better serve me well the way it's intended based on what I prefer. That's one right that makes a wrong in our churches. Secondly, in addition to my rights creating wrongs, there's also the times where I am right. I'm right. And this creates a whole other kind of wrongs. How often do we encounter people who are so entrenched in their thinking or in their views, that they are just simply unwilling to have a conversation. I'm the smartest person in the room. I know more about this issue than you do. I've got this figured out, and I'm standing here, and you can't move me. I don't care how hard you try, which means 
We think we're having a conversation, but we're not. I'm really standing there waiting for my turn to convince you whenever you stop talking about why I'm right and you're wrong. And furthermore, that I'm expecting you to come over on my side of the line to take my position. That's not a dialogue. That's not a conversation. That's not seeking mutual understanding. That certainly doesn't sound like an attitude of mutual submission. When I'm so convinced that I am just right, that around this place, it's going to be my way or the highway. So think to yourself for just a minute. In your experience of church over the years, this or others, how often have you seen people stomp out because of their rights? How often have you seen people leave a church because they were so sure that they were right, that they were unwilling to listen and consider that someone else might actually have something important to say? I learn over and over and over in my life just how often I am wrong all the time. And it's frustrating because I hate being wrong. <laughs> if we're honest, I think that's probably most of us, right? Nobody loves being wrong. Uh, and it does something to my heart. It requires a stance of humility. In those moments where I'm acutely wrong, I tend to think, okay, maybe this is God's way of humbling me. Because if I'm not careful, I can be that guy. So praise God for moments of humility where I'm reminded that I'm not always right. And that it's not about my rights. But that to be one means that I commit to you as my Christian brothers and sisters. I recognize the value of the church in this world. That to the extent we can be unified, we experience the fullness of God's intent for us to live in community. In a way that we can't in the other systems of this world. And I recognize that through this church there's an opportunity to share Jesus with the world. If only we can be unified and add credibility to our witness. And the hard part, the hard part for me is recognizing that that involves my participation with an attitude of humility. Where I'm willing to listen to my brothers and sisters even when I disagree. Where I'm not going to demand my rights above and beyond yours. And where I'm not going to be so arrogant as to assume that I am always right and everybody else is wrong. Right in the middle of this Ephesian letter, and I'll, I'll end with this, Matt, for you and your team. Right in the end of this letter here, uh, in the middle of the, le the letter really to Ephesians, I mentioned this whole letter start to to finish is a letter to the church, for the church, about the church. And somewhere right in the middle, for whatever reason, Paul includes this kind of a beautiful prayer for the church in Ephesus. And I want to close with this today simply because I think this is a great summary of some of the things that I've been talking about here. Paul says to the church, Jesus has died for us. He's given us opportunity for salvation and redemption. He's, he's removed the things that should divide us so that we can be unified as one. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. The whole family. 
I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power. Church, hear that as we are being prayed for that we be strengthened as a family with power through the Holy Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and established in love, how are we ever going to be unified if we can't truly love each other deeply? Being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints, together, together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That should be our church. Filled to the fullest, the full measure of God's intention for us to experience and for us to share with the world outside our doors. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, Within us, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.